Jesus, we want to thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you died on that cross for every one of us here this evening. Jesus, thank you that you that you saw how our lives were going to be. And even though we messed up, you still willingly died on that cross for us all those years ago. Jesus, thank you that we can talk to you this evening because you're not dead, because you are alive, and that you live in our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you're here with us this evening. And Lord, as we come to uh, open your word now, we pray that you would richly bless your brother Derek as he brings your word to us. And Lord, that you would bless us as we hear your words of life and truth. Lord, have your way, we pray in this time, in our lives. Amen. Amen. I'd like to take a seat. And then if you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Revelation chapter 3, and we're reading from verse 14. You may have it on your phone, if you're very well prepared this evening. Um, Otherwise, you may have it stored away in your memory banks, which is great. Um, It's the very last book of the Bible, if you're not quite sure where to find it. So Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. It's on the screen as well, if you want to be able to see it there too. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them, and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Muttley back, ooh, that's one of them, no, back in the dark ages before many of you were born. One Sunday evening in the church upstairs, we had a guest preacher from Romania called Nick Giagitsa. It was long before the revolution had taken place in Romania, 
and uh, Ceausescu was very firmly in control. What the congregation did not know, but what I picked up later that evening, was that as Nick was preaching very powerfully upstairs and prophesying the downfall of Ceausescu's government and that liberty would come to that land and to all of Eastern Europe, his home in Oradia was being searched by the Securitati and his wife and daughter were being harassed by those secret police. I went to Romania not long after and visited many people, met person after person whose life had been made very awkward and inconvenient because they were believers in Jesus Christ, denied promotion, made to work by the state many, many miles from the home where they lived, denied all sorts of freedoms, and yet I had never met a church that was so alive and vibrant and joyful in Christ. And down the years since then, it's been my privilege to travel widely, and I just reflect back on any number of occasions when I have stood with pastors and Christians around the world who've been imprisoned for their faith. One memorable sunny afternoon on a beach in Cuba, in Santiago de Cuba, where the pastors that I was with all spoke about having been imprisoned in the worst days of Castro's regime because they were pastors and Christians. Going to Thailand to meet the Karen refugees some years ago where they were harassed and thrown out of Burma into horrible refugee camps on the Thai border. And their faith as a totally Christian people was part of that mix. Just this last summer, I was in Sri Lanka teaching at a theological college. And they give you a sort of Batman while you're there to make sure you feed and uh, get to the right place at the right time. And I had a lovely young fellow who was serving as my assistant. He looked 18, but it was in fact 28. It was annoying. And he'd already planted two churches. But he began to tell me his story. Uh, Sri Lanka has a very small Christian population. Uh, and the dominant religion there is Buddhism, which you normally think is peaceful. But it was anything but peaceful where he was serving. There is, in fact, a militant strain of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And he described the situation where his house had been invaded and he'd been beaten up for the church that he'd founded in the village way up north from Colombo, and he was told to get out or his life would be on the line. It's about the first anniversary, just ten days short, of the day when Christians worshipping in the Anglican church in Peshawar, just a year ago, ended their service and came out of the church, only to meet headlong two Taliban suicide bombers, and 127 of them were killed, and many more were injured severely in that awful atrocity. I stayed with a friend who'd just come back from preaching at the opening of a church in Nigeria. That church, if you go to it in Nigeria, is surrounded by huge concrete blocks because not many months before my friend was preaching there, Another suicide bomber had driven a bomb-laden car into the compound of the church to blow it up. Why am I telling you all these stories? 
Well, not to depress you and think, isn't this great? Becoming a Christian means you're going to end up getting killed. But the truth is that the default position of Christians around the world, unlike the easy, tolerant, nice, comfortable time we have here in the West, the default position of most of our brothers and sisters who believe in Christ around the world is that they will suffer for their faith. And when you suffer for the faith, you're either for it or you're against it. There's no middle way. It's only in the West where we have nice, comfortable, tolerant, liberal democracies that we can afford the luxury of being lukewarm in our Christian faith, neither hot nor cold, which is exactly where this church in Laodicea was. So this is a letter which speaks to our situation but which doesn't speak to the situation of many Christians in many other areas of the world because their circumstances are different. Let me introduce you to the town of Laodicea. If we can have the next slide up. You've been looking at these seven churches uh, which uh, uh, John writing to from the island of Patmos begins with Ephesus and goes round in this sort of almost U-shape. Uh, they are those churches that form the postal route of the ancient world there in western Turkey. And you visited Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, at least if you've been here Sunday evenings you have. And this morning we come to the end of the line to the town of Laodicea. Laodicea was a rich and prosperous town in many ways and much of that is reflected in the letter that we'll look at a town by the river Lysus, opposite of which was the town of Hierapolis, and nearby the town of Colossae. The three of them formed a triumvirate of churches and shared much in common. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. He'd never visited them, but we can pick up from that letter much of what was going on in the area. And it's to this seventh church we pay attention tonight, and we're going to do something of a tourist guide of the town of Laodicea because it's reflected in the letter. But before we get there, we need to know who the tour guide is. Who is the Lord who speaks to the church at Laodicea and speaks in uncompromising terms? Every other letter up to now, all the six letters leading up to this, have been letters where there have been things to commend in the church as well as things to criticize. But this church... The final one is the letter that has absolutely nothing good said about the church in it. A devastating report. And if you're going to receive a devastating report, then you really want to know what right has the person speaking to say these things? Who is it? And how can we trust his judgment? Well, before, Paul, uh, before John tells us what the report is, he reminds us who it is speaking he tells us three things about the Lord who speaks. Firstly, he is the Amen. Secondly, he's the faithful and true witness. Thirdly, he's the ruler of creation. Once before in the Bible, way back in Isaiah 65, God has been called the God of the Amen. We use that term Amen when we issue a solemn oath, when we bless somebody or maybe more unfortunately when we curse somebody and we want it 
to be confirmed and to say, hey, these aren't mere words, these words will happen. They'll produce an effect in your life. And by saying that Jesus Christ is the Amen, John is reminding us that every word Jesus speaks is true and will come about. There is something trustworthy about his words. And in case you haven't got the message, he also says he's the faithful and true witness, which is precisely what the Colossian, what, what the Laodicean Christians weren't. They weren't faithful. They gave up at the slightest sign of inconvenience or discomfort. They would be mealy-mouthed rather than true. Revelation chapter 1 had already introduced Jesus as the faithful and true witness by which it was meaning that Jesus Christ remained faithful right to the end. He didn't give up halfway. When the going get got tough, when Judas betrayed him, when he faced the passion, when he faced even more the cross, he didn't throw in the towel, but was faithful right to the end, believing in God and trusting in God. Utterly reliable in not only what he said, not only affirmed by what he did, but utterly reliable by going and laying down his own life. His words were true and trustworthy. He's also, says John to the church at Colossae, the ruler of God's creation. Now, why does he suddenly introduce that element? Well, partly because Laodicea, like Hierapolis and, uh, and uh, Colossae that we mentioned just now, Laodicea was in earthquake zone. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17, and destroyed again by an earthquake in AD 60. Colossi was destroyed by an earthquake. If you lived there, you were in dangerous territory. Creation was not reliable. You could find yourself shaken to bits and your house destroyed and the uh, prominent buildings of the town ruined by this earthquake. And as they thought in the ancient world, so many of the neighbours of Christians in Laodicea would have looked out and thought, uh, oh yeah, there are some evil spirits out to get us. There are principalities and powers with evil intent who want to destroy us. And as Paul explains to the Colossians in very similar circumstances, no, there is one Lord who is the ultimate authority in our universe, who reigns over all. You may go through earthquake, but he's not ignorant of that. He's right there with you in it, and he will triumph over it and work through until the day when a new and perfect and harmonious creation, free from the threat of earthquakes, will arrive. He is the overlord of the universe, the lord of all creation. No one else but Jesus. Now, when you hear those qualifications, you sit up and take notice about what this judge is going to say. Uh, and it is a judgment. The judgment he makes is very fierce towards the church at Laodicea. We like to argue about judgments these days. It was interesting listening to the reaction to the Oscar Pistorius trial in South Africa this week when the judge who'd weighed the evidence and gone through the law and came to pronounce a sober judgment, issued her judgment. I wasn't at all surprised to hear others saying, well, that's her opinion. Our opinion is he should have been 
guilty of murder. Even a minister of the South African government who ought to have known better started interfering with the judgment of the court. But this is not the opinion of a judge. This is the judge who knows everything objectively. There is no bit of knowledge, no shred of information that he has overlooked. And when he speaks, his judgment is reliable and true. Laodicea, in fact, was part of the assize circuit. So the imperial judge used to come into Laodicea. They were used to having the judge from Rome appear. But this is the judge of all the earth who comes. And here is the judgment that he makes. The judgment that he makes actually takes the form of walking around the city of, uh, of Laodicea and using various things to explain to them, here's the ultimate line, that they are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And there should be a slide that's coming up there, which is why I'm pointing to the screen, and it's not there. <laughs> okay, it's got stuck. But that's the... Turn on the tap and you get hot water. Turn on the tap and you get cold water. Turn on the tap and you get lukewarm water. And, and actually, you don't want one or the other, do you? You, you want either hot or cold. If uh, you'd gone to get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, even tonight from the hatch there, and they hadn't boiled the water and had made the tea with tepid water, you wouldn't like it because a good cup of tea requires boiled water. Or if you were very thirsty, you've been for a run and uh, you're drained out and and you really need to quench that thirst and you want to go to the fridge to pick up some water, the most refreshing water is when it's cold. The last thing you want is to be drinking tepid water. Well, Jesus explains his verdict as he is the tour guide now of the city of Laodicea. And he does so by reference to four features that you see in the city. First of all, the water supply. It was a great city, so much going for it, as we'll see. But one of the liabilities was that actually they didn't have a good water supply. And so what they did was to pipe the water from hot springs two miles away over an aqueduct into the city of Laodicea. It started at the spring, 95 degrees centigrade. By the time it had got to Laodicea, it was tepid and lukewarm. It was undrinkable. In fact, it was vomit-inducing. And Jesus says, we're not too fine a point. Actually, that reminds me of you, the church. <laughs> you know, we think church and God automatically go together. But more than once in the Bible, we are warned that actually that's not an automatic equation you can make. There are churches that are so out of tune and out of touch with God that rather than going together, it actually makes God sick. And that's the verdict on the church in Laodicea as they look at the water supply there as a jumping-off point. But let's go further, says Jesus. Let's leave the water supply behind, uh, and let's look at the banking system. It was a rich and a prosperous city. It was materially wealthy. Its GDP was enviable. Its uh, high 
employment rate was the envy of the ancient world. The balance of payments were all in their favour. All the economic indicators stacked up in favour of Laodicea. They had good manufacturing industry there. In fact, they were so wealthy. When that earthquake took place in AD 60 and uh, it was destroyed, and Rome in the empire came along and said, we'll help you to rebuild. They said, we don't need your help, very mu- thank you very much. We can rebuild ourselves. We have enough resources. Now, Los Angeles is in earthquake zone in Western America. If the earthquake was to devastate Los Angeles, do you think Los Angeles would say to the state of California or to the nation of America, we don't need your help, get lost. We are rich enough to rebuild the city on our own? Of course not. They'd be declaring a state of emergency. They'd be asking the other states in America to come to the rescue since California's regularly broke. (laughs) But Laodicea was wealthy enough to do it on their own. But Jesus says, you know, as I reflect on your material wealth, I see something else. Your spiritual wealth is draining away. If you had any assets in the bank account once, you haven't any longer. You've lived off the past, maybe, and you've not invested in the present, in your relationship with God. So the truth is, you think you're wealthy, But actually, you're like homeless beggars living rough. You should be recipients of the soup run. You should be queuing up at the food bank spiritually because you have nothing going for you. Jesus says, you say, I am rich. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, naked. Yeah, the clothing factor catches Jesus' eye. And that leads to another factor in Laodicea. Jesus leaves, as it were, behind the bank and the the water treatment plant and comes now to the retail shops and to the clothing shop. They were very well known in Laodicea for producing uh, famous black wool from which expensive designer clothes were made. Uh, That's what they had made some of their wealth on, not all of it, but some of it undoubtedly had come as a result of that. And Jesus says to them, listen, you think you're well-dressed. You've got all the latest designer gear on. But the truth is, actually, you're naked. And you're going to reach out for the wrong clothes and garments to put on. You'll reach out for what's fashionable and what fits the image, what will make you popular amongst your neighbors. But what you need to be wearing... It's not the black clothes that we manufacture in Laodicea, but white robes. And those white robes, which have already been mentioned in uh, Revelation to the letter to Sardis there in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, those white robes stand for purity. Jesus says to the church of Sardis, uh, he's looking forward to people who've not soiled their clothes They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The church at Laodicea wasn't worthy. They had compromised. They had soiled their clothes. They had not lived morally pure lives. They hadn't bothered about holiness. And Jesus says, uh, you're wearing the wrong clothes or you're not wearing any clothes at all. What you need to do is go to the spiritual clothes shop 
and buy white garments. And he still hasn't finished. There's one more feature of the city of Laodicea that he picks up. Laodicea was well known for its famous medical school. And in that medical school, they had uh, devised a, a, a powder whose formula, like Coca-Cola, they kept secret. Nobody knew what it was. But it was world-renowned for curing a, a number of eye problems, and it was much sought after. And in that medical school, which had produced that eye ointment, there was also a very famous ophthalmologist who had a world-renowned reputation, Demosthenes Philarthes. People sought out his help because he could sort out the eyesight problems. And Jesus says, you know what? You think you can see everything clearly. But actually, you don't see things clearly at all. You're, you're proud of the eye salve you can get in the medical school. You're proud of Demosthenes, the ophthalmologist. But you need to take your own medicine, not physically, but spiritually. Now, when you get to that point in life where you're forced to wear glasses, if you ever do get to that point in life. You'll come out of the opticians and you'll put on your glasses and you'll suddenly see things in the right perspective. You thought you could see pretty good up to then. But when you put the glasses on, you actually see things so differently. and You see them through the right lenses. And Jesus says you need to see things through the right lenses. One of the tricks of Satan, Martin Luther, the reformer, used to say is that he added to all the other miseries that we face in life. The fact that he fools us. He makes us blind and we don't perceive that we're blind. We think we can see. So we don't see the situation as it really is. And what's Jesus saying to this church in Laodicea? Well, you're a compromised church. You're a comfortable church. You're playing at Christianity. You want it to make you feel good, but you don't want to pay any cost or meet any challenge. You come to church because you think that uh, you've got some special privileges, some hotline to God, but you don't allow God to transform your life or change you. You don't order the priorities of your life according to God's priorities. You aren't interested in world mission. You aren't interested in sharing the gospel. You aren't interested in transforming society. You're just interested in what's in it for me. I wish, says Jesus, you were either burning hot, I could cope with that. I could even cope if you were Christians in a refrigerator and you were frozen, as many Christians seem to be. That would at least be decisive. But what I can't stand, says God, is the fact that you're pretending to be Christians, but really you're neither the one thing nor the other. You're somewhere in the middle. It's a good British trait, you know, to be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and the danger is that that cultural trait transfers to our spiritual lives. And we need to hear the voice of the judge who, if it was Ofsted and school, they'd be saying, this church needs to go on special measures. It needs rescuing or else it's on the way out. It's failing. And it uh, wouldn't be a bad idea sometimes if churches were subject to a sort of spiritual Ofsted. Uh, not an Ofsted about your finances. Uh, the accountants take care of that and the auditors every year. 
not an inspection about your buildings and the light fittings and health and safety and whether you've got child protection policies in place, not an inspection as to whether you're an active church. There are so many churches that are active churches. That's not the issue. The issue is what's the heart? Where is Jesus in all that activity? And so Jesus moves on to issue an invitation. He isn't saying all this because he wants to crush them or wound them. I have uh, often not chosen not to preach on this part of Scripture because it's very easy to beat congregations up and tell them how awful they are and how fa- much failures they are. It's easy to, to uh, be uh, uh, challenging folks all the time. But Jesus exercises great skill in saying the harshest of things. Actually, all the way through the letter, he's been saying, listen, hear what I'm saying, but then turn the criticism into an invitation. So uh, you're proud of your banking system, but let me invite you to go for gold which is refined rather than impure and corrupted. Choose another supplier who can supply you with goods that are not going to let you down. Change your clothes so that you're wearing pure garments, not just garments that fit the image of the day. Go to the real doctors who can help you with your eyes so that you have pure spiritual eyesight rather than fuzzy eyesight suffering from all sorts of issues. And having peppered the letter with invitations, by implication at least, he now reaches the the climax of the letter and issues one other great invitation. If you didn't know anything about the letter to Laodicea until now, you probably knew about this verse, Revelation 3.20, and the image of Jesus as the light of the world knocking on the door. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, look, this is the situation you're in, but you don't need to stay there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This invitation that Jesus issues is sent in love, not to crush and wound and condemn and induce guilt. Jesus says these harsh things in order that they might move on, in order that they might not stay there in that situation. As uh, verse 19 tells us, Jesus says, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. If Jesus did not care, he wouldn't have been speaking in these terms. It was because he cared so much he wanted to rescue them from their spiritual lethargy and put them back on the right track again. This invitation is sent in love. This invitation is spoken with urgency. As a result of that, Jesus says, so, you know, I'm trying to correct you in love. So be earnest and repent Do something about it. Don't just sit there saying, oh, that's nice. We've had a letter from Jesus, you know. (laughs) Isn't that kind? But let it make a life-changing, transforming effect. And, And here's the urgency followed through. I'm standing at the door and knocking. I don't know whether you've ever done any 
witnessing from door to door. We've knocked on people's doors, as I've done many times around the streets here and elsewhere in the churches with which I've been associated. I have to tell you there are times when I'm just knocking very gently on the door, very softly, in the hope that people won't hear. And then I can say to people, well, I tried, but they were out, or they didn't hear, you know, and it looks good because I can tally up the houses that I called on, but, well, how unfortunate. I didn't actually have to engage in any conversation with anybody because they didn't come to the door. I tell you, Jesus is not knocking gently like that in the hope you'll be out. (laughs) He knows you're in. He's knocking much more like a policeman might knock, according to all those cop shows on telly, when they arrive at the door. And if the door gets in the way, well, the cops will just come through it. Jesus won't. Jesus says, I want you to open the door. And that's uh, an invitation to us personally. This verse has so often been used, uh, and God has used it to say to many people, Listen, Christ is standing on the outside of your life. But he longs to come in to the center of it. And why wouldn't you want the one who is the Amen and the faithful and true witness, the one who is the Lord of creation, why wouldn't you want him at the center of your life? He surely knows what he's talking about, the best way to live. And why wouldn't you want to have the richest of friendships and relationships when you open the door and invite him in so that he comes and sits down and has a meal with you, which is usually what you do with friends. <laughs> and if you have never opened the door of your life to let Jesus in, then tonight may be the night when you do that and start a relationship with Jesus that you've never had until this point, because he's knocking with wounded hands, with hands that were nailed to a cross in order to bear your burdens and your sin away from you and to give you a new and eternal and quality of life that you can never find on your own. That's the hand which is knocking at the door. But the truth is, these words are not just addressed to individuals. They are addressed to the church. He's saying to the church at Laodicea, as a community, you've put me on the outside. It's time to open the door and invite me back And only if you make me central in your relationships, in your priorities, in your life together, will you become the hot Christians that don't make me vomit, rather than the lukewarm Christians that make me sick. The only cure, said an ancient preacher in London at the turn of the uh, 20th century, the only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ. And there are many churches who need to open the door to Jesus because they're full of religiosity, maybe even full of activity, but full of self, full of arguments, full of disputes, full of conflicts, full of possessiveness, full of history and tradition they want to preserve, but not full of the living Jesus who longs to sit down and to have an intimate relationship with people, letting Jesus back in and seeing the wonder of what he has done for you, listening again to his teaching, will reignite your passion, refocus your energies, sort out your priorities, and expel the sin from your life. Sometimes we just become so familiar with things. We, we take things for granted. We think Jesus is here, but he's not. 
I was in the House of Commons a couple of years ago with a party of students that I was teaching, and our MP was showing us around that absolutely magnificent building. If you've not been into Westminster, find an opportunity to do so. Full of history, full of gold. It's absolutely awesome, very seductive. And I said to our MP, who then was about to retire, had been in the house 20 years or so, John, do you ever get tired of this? Do you just take it for granted? And he said to me, yes, it's easy to do that, but do you know what happens when I do? I join a tour party, and I listen to the tour guide walking around and explaining to the people who've never been here before all the wonderful features of this house, and I fall in love with it all over again. You may be very familiar with Jesus. You may, as a church, presume that he is here. But maybe it's time to step back and listen to the tour guide of Laodicea. (laughs) Take his words seriously. Hear that knock on the door and open up and say, no, we've done with lesser things. We don't want to belong to the fellowship of the ashamed in Christ. We don't want to belong to the band of compromisers. We want to be all out to serve Jesus Christ. Which means for many of you, as your life is yet to be shaped and your future is yet to be molded, and you have so many opportunities in front of you to serve Christ, your first priority should not be, can I get into a good profession, good office, rise up the ladder, make sure I have a good pension at the end, or I should go for status or security. Your first question should be, Lord, where in the world do you want me to serve? How can my life be used so that I'm not an insipid Christian, but I'm a Christian who is totally dedicated for you and will use my life to bring others to, to know Jesus Christ as Lord? Hey, that church at Laodicea, Jesus is saying to them, you're a compromised church, you're, you're a comfortable church. What are you about Your bank account is draining away. You're wearing the wrong clothes. Everything about you actually is wrong. But come back. It's not fatal yet. Come back and open the door to me. What's Jesus saying to Muttley? What's Jesus saying to you tonight? We're going to get a chance in just a moment to reflect on some of that. First of all, reflecting, using our imagination more widely, but then in some of the questions we're going to look at for a few moments, coming to look quite personally as we engage in taking our own spiritual temperatures. But before we do that, let's pray. We thank you for the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does not write us off in his impatience, but gently by his Spirit strives with us. Thank you that that spirit, as James says, strives over us in love, yearning for better things from our lives. Lord, if we hear the knock of Jesus on our life tonight, help us to open the door and let him in. As we think about the situation of the church as we come from the church here at Mutley, of which we're a part. Lord, help us to be parts of community that don't exclude Jesus, but bring him in and make him central. So all that we say and do aligns with him and pleases him. Help us to be a passionate, pure people. 
who stand in an uncompromised way for the gospel. Thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who've paid that price and are paying it tonight. Lord, we ask that we might not put ourselves in their position because our culture situation is different, but have the same commitment, the same passion to be all out for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.